Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Kairos Partnerships. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining in today. We are, Bob and I are having a conversation at the end of the interview. Uh, We have a very special guest today talking about uh, the church and politics and some things that are really simple conversations to talk about. And Bob and I had some really great conversation that we felt like was, yeah, we just hit record as soon as we ended our, our, the interview with Dr. Richard Mao. Um, but so we ask that you would hang out till the end, listen, but we know that with election season coming up, there's a lot of stuff that is happening within each and every church. And we hope that this would even uh, create some good conversation for you. Um, we highly recommend Dr. Mao's book, uh, and we hope that you enjoy this conversation. Our guest today is Dr. Richard J. Mao. Dr. Mao is a senior research fellow at the Henry Institute for the Study of Religion and Politics at Calvin University. He previously served as the president of Fuller Theological Seminary from 1993 to 2013 and directed their Institute of Faith and Public Life. He has been a public speaker and an author, and he has written over 20 books, including Uncommon Decency, Adventures in Evangelical Civility, Restless Faith, and All That God Cares About. We hope that you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Richard J. Mao. We are here with Dr. Richard Mao, who has been kind enough to allow us to call him Rich Mao. And uh, Rich, thank you so much for joining us uh, on the Monday Morning Pastor podcast today. Um, could you tell us a bit about your story, uh, the story of your life, and what brought you to write this particular book? Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Hey, great to be with you guys. And uh, I'm, uh, I mean, uh, you know, the, the very short version of the, the executive summary of my life. I was born and raised in New Jersey. I graduated from Houghton College, Houghton College in mm-hmm. Western New York. Yeah. Ultimately, got a PhD in philosophy at the University of Chicago, and I did that during the 1960s, which were the the days of radical political action on university campuses. Uh, I uh, got caught up myself in civil rights marches and in uh, opposition to the war in Vietnam. Uh, I'm not proud of everything I stood for in those days, but uh, I, I got politicized, and, and that was a time that it was very difficult to, to uh, avoid uh, politics. Uh, during that time, I, uh, I, I became disillusioned with the radical leftist kind of thing in the, in, the, in the sense of the ways in which they went about things, the ways in which they express their concerns. Uh, at the same time, I was very alienated from the evangelical community because, uh, you know, editor of Christianity Today at the time said that Martin Luther King was probably a good person, but he was being used by the communists, you know, and this kind of thing. So I felt caught between a lot of things. And uh, but I went and got my, my uh, teaching position at the faculty at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And around that time, I, I met Ron Sider of, of blessed memory and got very involved in evangelicals for social action. 
And, uh, but I began teaching about these things. Fact is, there wasn't much in the evangelical world that we could uh, assign as as text. A wonderful book by Carl Henry, "The Uneasy Conscience of Modern Fundamentalism," in which he rightly argued that the fundamentalist movement, which was really the evangelical movement up to that year, nineteen forty-seven, uh, was uh, anti-intellectual. wasn't really wrestling with the important questions, but at the same time was ignoring many of the major cultural issues. And, you know, Carl Henry, in 1947, we Bible-believing Christians have been on the wrong side of race and militarism, which was very interesting for 1947. And he called for a, a more careful, discerning wrestling with these issues. And and I I found that very encouraging in my my own career. 1985, I moved to uh, Fuller Theological Seminary to teach ethics and social ethics and the like. And then 1989, I was appointed provost. 1993, I became president and served as president for 20 years. So that's the basic story of my life. I have a wife and we have a son and uh, who is married and lives in Little Rock, Arkansas. And uh, we have two wonderful grandsons, and one of them married, and the other just got engaged. And so we're really grateful to the Lord for all the ways in which God has acted in our lives, guided us. That's wonderful. Dr. Mao, your, your latest book is uh, How to Be a Patriotic Christian, Love of Country as Love of Neighbor. I'm wondering if you can tell us how you define Patriotism. What is and what is a patriotic Christian? Well, a patriotic Christian is, uh, I think, patriotism. You know, that comes from the word father, father, fatherland, patriotism, mm -hmm. or we could say motherland as as well. Uh, but uh, it's it's in many ways like uh, a family. Uh, you know, I mm -hmm. we are born into specific family. And we have a special relationship. I have a special relationship to my family, mm -hmm. uh, not the family down the street. Uh, I have to love those as well. They are my neighbors. Uh, but, uh, but you know, you love your family because that's, that's your family. Mm. Uh, I tell a story early on in the book about uh, buying my mother when I was about nine, ten years old. I bought my mother her first. Mother's Day card, and it said she was the greatest mother in the world. Now, well, she probably wasn't, uh, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that the girl down the street gave her mother a card that also said that she's the greatest number in the world. But my mother did not go to war with her mother over mm. who's the greatest mother. You know, uh, we express those things in the context of where God has placed us. God gave me this family. And God put me in the United States. And uh, so I have a special relationship to the United States. That doesn't make it the greatest nation in the world. It just makes it my nation. And mm. I love it because of the blessings that I've experienced and some of the frustrations, too, that I've experienced because family life doesn't always go well. And national life doesn't always go well either. Um, 
So we're called by God to, uh, you know, God in, in uh, the Old Testament, Israel was taken off into the pagan land of Babylon, the city of Babylon, which is a pretty bad place. And they were wondering, how in the world do I serve the Lord <laughs> in this mm. pagan city? And then Jeremiah comes to them and says, uh, here's the deal. Uh, plant gardens and eat the produce. Uh, have children, <clears throat> marry off your sons and daughters, and multiply in the land. And then this, but seek the welfare, the shalom, of the city in which I have placed you, and 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 pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its shalom you will find your shalom. They were there, and they had to seek the welfare of that city. And uh, I have to, we Christians who are Americans have to seek the, the, the welfare. And that also means, you know, I, I, I'm going on too long, but I, I, I did a study of all of the patriotic songs uh, before I started writing my book. And uh, there are three things that we love about our nation that we sing about in our songs. One is that we love the natural beauty. Uh, not Purple Mountain's majesty. I love thy rocks and rills and hills and streams and the like. Uh, secondly, we uh, we love a lot of things about our past because our flag was still there on that morning. <laughs> hmm. And then thirdly, uh, there are ideals that we love, freedom and justice. And with that freedom and justice thing, we also sing, God, mend thine every flaw. We ask God mm. to bless America with grace. And so there, there are things within our own patriotism that require us to think critically about our country as well. Mm. Not all the stories that pass are good stories. Nah, the, the waving fields of grain uh, are in trouble these days with lack of, lack of water and many other things. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I think I can really identify with the idea of patriotism as as love of of a particular larger family that you're born into. I'm wondering for you as you wrote this book and as you thought about this and and tried to discern from a uh, a Christian a biblical perspective, what what do you find are the the boundaries to patriotism? Yeah, when does sure. it become nationalism? That's a hot button word yeah. these days. Yeah. Like when does what are the the when does one become the other? Yeah, yeah. And, and there's no question. Uh, you know, I get a little tired of people who want to say all patriotism is idolatry. You know, hmm. no, there's a, an affection. It's an affection for your country. It's that, that kind of love. It's not, not loving it at all costs or refusing to be critical. And I think nationalism, uh, which treats America as the exceptional nation, you know, God mm -hmm. has blessed it uh, in ways. And, and there may be cores of truth to those kinds of things, uh, but uh, we, we are not to worship our nation. There's a wonderful verse in 1 Peter 2 where it says that uh, it gives four instructions. It says we're to look, we are to fear the Lord. We are to love the church. We are to honor the emperor. And we're to honor all human beings. 
you know, honor all men, it says, you know. And the verbs there, fear is phobio. I mean, that's pretty intense, you know, phobia. The fear of the Lord, intense. Agapao, the church, that's an agape love. It's a self-giving love, a self-sacrificing love. And we owe that to all human beings, Christians in North Korea, you know, Christians in uh, Santiago. But, uh, but we're, we, we also owe all human beings honor, which the verb is timao. It means have regard for their well-being, seeking the shalom of all human beings. And that's the same verb that we say to the emperor. Mm. We're going to honor the emperor. That's not fear, not the fear of the Lord. And, and loving all human beings isn't all agape love. No. And so we need to find our patriot, patriotic activities within the context of that framework. Sometimes I refer to, you know, our domestic policy, the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's my primary identity. Hmm. And I've got a king and I've got fellow citizens. But then I also live in the United States and we have a government and I've got fellow citizens there. And, uh, I need to be. I need to take the biblical instructions on both. How do I honor the United States? How do I honor my fellow citizens in the United States? And since I have to honor all human beings, honoring the state, the nation, means that I will honor them out of a deep desire to have them honor all citizens. You know, and when a government goes wrong on that, well, then they are not worthy of our honor. I really appreciate the way that you're looking at this from a biblical perspective. And, and it sounds like you've really wrestled with um, just the nuance of your experience of growing up in the 60s and where we are today. And I'd love to hear you compare and contrast a little bit. What was it like as a Christian in the 60s opposed to as a Christian living today in terms of our relationship with the nation in which we live. Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, for many of us, it was kind of rough, and especially as a Bible-believing Christian, you know, where I remember I heard live on television Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And uh, uh, it, it occurred to me, I, at 1957, at the Billy Graham uh, and a big uh, crusade in Madison Square Garden. I invited some of my high school friends to go. and But I felt God's call for me to walk down the aisle that night and make a public affirmation of my faith. And I really had a sense that the same God who pleaded with me to walk down the aisle at the Billy Graham rally was the God who was speaking to me about the need for racial justice. Yeah. And I wanted those two things together. And, uh, and yet it was very difficult uh, uh, with, with the Christian community. And the same with, uh, you know, thinking critically. I was, I was uh, of a draftable age. You know? And I could not in good conscience go to Vietnam. Uh, and there were people saying, love it or leave it. You know, people saying, uh, you're being, you're, you're not a good American. Whereas I felt that I was, I was honoring my country by asking these questions. Uh, but there was a lot of polarization then, too. And there's a polarization today. I think the polarization today, though, is, uh, is more extreme 
because we, you know, I wrote a book on civility back in the 80s, late 80s. And I was very concerned about, you know, how does incivility <clears throat> show up in Northern Ireland between Catholics and Protestants and Bosnia-Herzegovina between Christians and Muslims and like. I was thinking about the big issues where religion is a cause of incivility. And after I wrote my book, I got two calls within two weeks, one from the Boston Globe, the other from the New York Times. <clears throat> and uh, they had seen my book. I don't think they read it. But <clears throat> they wanted to talk about incivility in parking lots on California freeway, you know, road rage. <clears throat> and I think that just that's that's gotten more intense so that we have incivility on the on the floor of the United States Congress, you know. Mm -hmm. We've got incivility in meetings in the White House. Uh, uh, it's almost everywhere. We have incivility in local congregations. Mm -hmm. And so today it's a, it's not just some people criticizing other people over this particular thing, the war in Vietnam or civil rights. But it's almost a, an incivility that's gotten woven into the very fabric of the nation. And it's pretty hard to go anyplace without running into it. And, uh, yeah, we're, we're talking for the sake of pastors today. It's very difficult to be a pastor today. Um, I thank God for those who are hanging in there and being faithful to the call of the gospel. But we have a lot of thinking to do about how we can serve a church that is itself divided by bipartisan things. Yeah, I think it's interesting because as I as I think about the next two years, you know, there's the 2024 election. I think pastors have PTSD from 2020 election. Um, and, you know, in just a few years, it's coming again. And, and many churches have experienced incredible difficulty and, and a lot of anger and frustration. You're saying too much. You're not saying enough. You know, you're, you're, you're not standing here. You're, you're standing down here. Um, and it seems like election cycles now within churches and granted, I've, I've, I've only been a pastor since, since the turn of the century. And so I, I don't remember what it was like in the churches, um, when I was growing up. Um, but what would you say to the pastor right now who is already feeling this, uh, this angst about what's coming up in 2024 and, and, and how to enter in, how to wade into that in a Jesus way, in a biblical way? Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I, I think one of the key things that pastors need to do, and I, I, I also feel that we have failed in our teaching ministry. You know, I had a pastor during the last campaign, uh, the, the campaign where the, when Trump was elected, who stood up at a meeting of pastors and he said, you know, I've never preached a sermon on politics ever. And I probably never will preach another one, but I've got to speak out against Trump. What do you have to say to me? You know? And I said, well, congratulations. You know, you're, you've got quite a record there. But I said, if you've never preached a political sermon before <laughs> and you don't plan to do one again, you may feel good about yourself in saying something that you consider to be truth. But, uh, but you're not engaging in your teaching ministry. And apart from your teaching ministry, 
uh, just saying something that you think is true and courageous isn't going to really do any good. And we do have a teaching ministry in this. And I, and, and I think one of the things we need to teach is that um, we should not see people primarily in terms of who they voted for or what their policy things are. Uh, my, uh, I've been quoting a lot, a wonderful line from A Christmas Carol, you know, very familiar. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in the birth of Jesus. You know? And I think we need to realize that uh, the person who votes differently than me, who's a member of my church, I may disagree with the way she voted, but she's guided by hopes and fears. And if we're going to talk, we need to talk about those. You know what's, you know what's really motivating her, rightly or wrongly? She's frightened about uh, how her grandchildren are being uh, uh, educated in school. You know, she's, she's concerned about kids. She's concerned about the deeper issues, her own security, economic security, and the like. And uh, that's when we really need to dig in. There's a spiritual formation that's very necessary in all of this. And we need to get people together and learn how to talk to each other about, about mm -hmm. these things. And what you don't do is do, and I think the vocabulary is very important in this. I, I don't say to her, why did you vote that way? I would say to her, hey, uh, help me understand. Is this the way you would put your reason for voting? Am I getting it right? Uh, trying to get her to, to, so that we can at least begin with what she's really feeling, what she's really concerned about. I was, I, I was on National Public Radio, uh, do a dialogue with a, a gay activist, a queer theory person. And we went back and forth. But I said to him at one point, you know what I wish? I wish that you and I could talk about these things, shut the door, so that your people aren't cheering you on and my people aren't cheering me on. Because just, we can just really talk. And you know what I'd like to ask you? What is it about people like me, evangelical Christians like me, that, that upsets you so much, that concerns you so much? And that you can say to me, what is it that I and my partner want out of life that you find so threatening as a fellow citizen that we can really talk about our deeper hopes and fears? And he said, that's wonderful. And then the, the, they opened it up. It was a national show, and they opened it up for calls. And somebody called in and said, the first call was, why do you have this Mao guy on there? Are you going to have a slave owner tomorrow defending slavery? And, and the queer thirds, the gay activist said, let me handle this one. Hmm. He said, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Hmm. He has asked us to really talk about what motivates us. And if we can't have that kind of conversation, we are in big trouble. Yeah. And I really think that we need that kind of safe place thing in the church where we can talk to each other. and. Uh, find ways to, to really learn about each other, you know. Mm. And so when, when I'm talking to that person that I disagree with, uh, I, I, I want to I learn why she feels the way she feels, why she is motivated the way she's motivated, and how she understands 
her faithfulness to the gospel in those times. Dr. Mal, I would suspect that um, in the same way that there are many different uh, kind of segregated communities within the church as a whole in America that we do tend to divide along various different lines, I think politically is one of those lines that it's it, it, you're you're probably not likely to be worshiping next to somebody who doesn't think the same way politically that you are. So I'm wondering, I, I love this idea of dialogue. I love this idea of, of helping people understand where the other is coming from. Uh, and you, you mentioned that phrase, safe space. I, between now and this next election, if a pastor is looking out at his community and saying, or her community, and saying, I think we might be a little too homogenous in this way, how how might they become a more welcoming place for those who might be more conservative than them or more progressive than them? Like what, practically speaking, what might that look like? And here's the real question. How does, how can a pastor uh, remain safe while doing that themselves? How can, how can it be a safe place for someone trying to lead through that? Yeah. That's what I'm really scared about. And uh, the answer to all your questions is, I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> no, but you know, it, uh, somehow, some way, to try to see the other with whom mm -hmm. we disagree about these things. As a, as a fellow believer, you know, who is yeah. really struggling with, with issues that, that we ought to be caring about as well. If there's some way that we could at least affirm our faith in in Jesus Christ. I, I have a a couple who are uh, we're in a small group with. I know them well, and they, they they're much more conservative than they voted very differently than I did. Mm. And they got really upset about Black Lives Matter. And then they told me after a while uh, they have a black friend. Mm. Um, a guy who worked worked for Youth for Christ, and they got to know him, and they feel very safe with him. He said we were with him one night, and we just told him how angry we were about Black Lives Matter, you know. Mm. And he said, uh, "Hey, folks, uh, I'm not going to defend everything about Black Lives Matter, but let me tell you about the times that I've been discriminated against." And they said, he told me heartbreaking stories. And uh, we then were able to look with him at the website for Black Lives Matter and agree with some of the stuff in there, mm. you know. But they found a, a person who shared out of his, they, they trusted him as a fellow believer. And, and, and maybe we can find ways of doing that. Yeah. Uh, in the church, you know, one of the great evangelical leaders in during my lifetime is John Perkins. Mm -hmm. John Perkins, actually, John Perkins uh, really got along well with Ronald Reagan. You know, he went mm -hmm. to the White House during those times. But what John Perkins could say to very conservative evangelicals is, I got arrested once under false pretenses, and I got beaten up in jail. 
And I realized that Jesus really cares about racial justice, you know. Mm. And and there are many people who were 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 came to see certain things through the eyes of John Perkins. And we we can't we we can't require him to say those things, but we can thank the Lord that he was willing to be patient with so many. Mm. And we need to find find those conversations. And I don't know how to do that, but yeah. uh, it's, and, and again, it's pretty hard to do it during an election campaign, you know? Mm. And the problem is every, every year is an election campaign. We don't govern anymore. <laughs> yeah. The minute we <laughs> win, yeah. we start the next election, you know? Yeah. And then back in the old days, uh, you know, when, when Ronald Reagan, could call up Tip O'Neill, the mm-hmm. Irish Democrat from Boston, who just criticized him, and said, "Let's get together." And they get together for lunch, and they'd actually come up with something. We, we don't see enough of that, and we need to find those people who are willing to make those phone calls as well mm-hmm. and support. Yeah. I think there's just so many different places. Uh, th- this is our first conversation we've had on the Monday Morning Pastor about specifically how do we engage as as Christians who live in a nation. And I just really appreciate your humility, your stories, and just the way that you really invite people into uh, a pretty non-anxious space of, of um, you know, let's, let's, let's have, let's discuss, let's have a dialogue. And I appreciate the story that you shared about you know, your, your trends, your conversation on NPR. Um, and, mm. and I don't know, I, I think in some ways there is hope that maybe, maybe this, maybe in the years to come, we can begin to see Christians um, move away from feeling like we have to defend certain places and that we can actually just begin to dialogue and and to see things. And, and mm. I think that's such a hard space for pastors because there are these times where you know, well, if you don't agree with me on this pastor, then you obviously are not a Christian. And it's like, it feels like there's just that heaviness that settles in when you talk about something like politics. It's, you know, and, and what I appreciate in in what you're sharing is that it's, there seems that there has to be humility uh, from both sides in order for safe place to, to, in safe places to take place. Um, but wanted to just ask you uh, just just to, we're, we're running short on time, but I, I did want to ask if you could encourage our pastors with a blessing or a benediction. I certainly can. Uh, let's, let's pray together, shall we? Oh God, I thank you for pastors who hang in there and are willing to seek ways to lead your people in very difficult times. And I pray now, O God of peace, who is brought again from the dead, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that that great shepherd of the sheep, that through the blood of the everlasting covenant, you will continue to make your people perfect, perfecting us. We've got a long way to go, but perfecting us unto every good work, including good works in the voting booth. And and while watching uh, news on television, uh, every good work uh, to the honor and the glory of Jesus Christ. And we pray this, I pray this in your powerful name. Amen. Amen. 
So that was a, a great conversation. And one of the things that uh, was really bouncing around in my head as he was talking was, uh, you know, I was a, Doug, I planted a, a church in Portland, Oregon in 2004. Yeah. And one of the things that um, I think really uh, distinguished our church community was that it was, in spite of Portland itself being a very not diverse place uh, racially, we as a church were diverse politically. There were people who were on the right. There were people who were on the left. Uh, we had people self-proclaimed socialists all the way to NRA members. And that was something that uh, it just always struck me as being pretty unique. Um, but I think that the problem was much like Dr. Mao talked about, we, we didn't so much preach on politics. It was knowing that there was this wide array of viewpoints within the community. We, I, I kind of wanted to stay away from it a little bit, you know, just to, just to avoid stirring the pot. But as he was speaking, uh, I was just getting this picture of maybe we really missed an opportunity there. Hmm. You know, I, I was thinking about um, I know that the the church that you pastor, you have these town hall meetings, and I was just thinking about what would it have been like to bring that especially conservative uh, member of our community and that especially liberal one, knowing that they're actually friends, but they probably don't talk politics because they're <laughs> they're polite, uh, but knowing that they worship together and just and just having that uh just a moderated time where as christians we talk about well tell me how, through the lens of your faith how do you how, how do you occupy that spectrum of the the political or that place in the political spectrum and through the lens of your faith how do you think about these issues and actually uh, you know because dr mao is right it, we live in a time of incivility and the thing that i was thinking the most is uh, of course we do, because no one's showing us how to be civil anymore. Yeah. Like any debate that we ever see is a gotcha debate. It's all about scoring points. It's never about actually understanding the viewpoint of the person that we're talking to. Mm -hmm. And I just, I just had this picture in my head of, boy, if the church could be the place where that started, wouldn't that be amazing? I love that, Bob. I, I think you're really on to, yeah, having that, having that modeled and even practice within a community of faith. I, I feel like there's so much there that could really transform the way that, that our, that, that we live, that, that our witness looks in the culture around us, right? Like maybe it's like, oh, those are people that are just whatever, you know, fill in the blank. The yeah. churches fill in the blank, opposed to maybe, you know, the church is still fill in the blank, but I've had some really engaging conversations with people that I flat out disagree mm. with. Like, yeah. I, I wonder if there's something there um, that, I don't know, like, as you were saying, I just started thinking there was this quote, um, oh gosh, I cannot remember the, the guy's name, but it's in a Sue Pickering book. And he, uh, he talks about, the, the quote was, you can listen someone into existence. Mm. And thinking about that, that space that we hold as Christians where, and I think it comes even to the conversation around non-anxious presence, right? Like, yeah. can I sit there and have someone say something that makes all, you know, all the heresy hairs on the back of my neck stand up or whatever, 
all the political ideas that I may believe in or what, you know, stand up straight, but yet still be engaged in just listening and hearing the story. Um, I, I, I think, I think that might be something yeah. that could really begin to transform a community just at, and even just their public witness, not that they'll figure out how to do all this stuff, but just that, Oh, it's a safe place where you can actually talk with people. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I remember after the, the, um, when president Trump was first elected, the thanks that Thanksgiving, there were all these articles, how, how to do Thanksgiving, how to talk to your family. And, uh, I, I have in-laws who have political views that I just, I have no idea how to talk to them, but what if the church was the place where I could learn that? What if, <laughs> what if at church, one of the things I was being equipped with was not just how to witness to people, but how to converse with people with whom I disagree. Interesting. You know, it's not about just sharing my faith, but it's also about listening to theirs. It's yeah, uh, yeah even if I'm in a, a a church that holds a very uh, tr- historical, traditional view of sexuality, what if that was the place where I learned to talk to my my gay cousin and his or her partner? Uh, yeah. civilly and lovingly, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. how might that change, particularly even just talking about the, the division within the church and the polarization within the church itself, if we began to, to really dig into that? It's interesting. I had coffee with a, a gentleman in, in, in our church maybe a month ago. And we've, we, we, I mean, you know this, Bob, and, and we've talked about formation and discipleship. Like that's, that's mm-hmm. the line. La- that's the language that of, of the church that we've breathed, right? Like we want to, we want to follow in the way of Jesus. And he said, what if there was like a second round of discipleship that took place that was really just mm. around exactly what you're talking about, how to, how to have conversations with people that are completely different than you. Yeah. And it was weird because I, I think having that conversation, I thought to myself, it's so needed. And then I also thought to myself, that is probably some of the hardest work to do yeah. in the con- in, in, within a church, and especially for pastors, because yeah. we feel like the minute, I mean, I feel this pressure, the minute I lay down my political card, I've lost a quarter, you know, I've lost probably half of my congregation on either side, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I can't believe that you align with this person or with that person. Um and and I think that there is that fear of like I can't even talk about it. Like it's easier to talk about yeah. sex in a church than politics, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. which I think part of that is just because there are these certain hot button issues that we've, you know, it's like we either it's either fight flight or just hope it yeah. goes away. I guess. And but and here's I wonder, the thing, Doug, it's like if we're not talking about it in the context of Christian community. Mm-hmm. In the context of face-to-face dialogue, they will be talking about it on Facebook <laughs> in the Correct. context of the rules and the tone of Facebook. And we see that all Correct. the time. Like Correct. the way that your church members speak to each other on Facebook, they would never uh, speak that way in, in person. And yes. if we're not giving them those opportunities and actually opening that door and setting the table to have productive dialogue in person, they're going to have mm. it in these other places where it's not going to be productive and it's, it's not going to be helpful. Yeah. Wow. Uh, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that's why there's a lot of times I'll have conversations with uh, younger 
younger people that talk about how they appreciate uh, Joe Rogan talking about really hard topics or, you know, this podcast or talking about really difficult topics. But again, it can be easy when it's a, here's a talking head and here's a conversation between people yeah. that's modeled, you know, in, in, you know, in my ears on an, on an app. But when I actually have to sit down across from somebody, I think that really, I think, I think yeah. that really can be such a needed place for discipleship for, for followers of Jesus in this time. Mm. Yeah. So, so now that we've just raised the anxiety of all pastors who are listening, they're like, oh my gosh, how are we going to get that off the ground? But maybe it's just, who's that one person? And I'm blessed. Um, there's, I'm going to do some name dropping, but um, there's a guy named Dave Edwards, who's, who's part of my mm. church. And, and Dave worked uh, in social services in the state, of, in, in a state near us for years and years and years and, and worked, worked with kids in foster care. And like, he has been one of the most life-giving dialogue partners. And, and we, there are certain things that we don't see eye to eye on, but I've just loved his, his candor, his heart, his attitude, and just the way he listens well. Um, and he's just modeled so much about what it looks like to, to be a Christian and to, and to live into some of these really difficult topics. I mean, he, as, as a guy, he, he, he had, he worked in some really hard spaces. And so he's, not only has a, a ton of years of experience, but also just a, a heart that loves the Lord and wants to see people's mm. lives transformed. And so I think, I think those people are in your church. Like yeah. that's my guess yeah. is they're there and it's like, start there, right? Start yeah. that conversation with that person that, that, you know, you can say like, Hey, can we have this really weird conversation about something that I feel like I can't talk to anyone about? Um, or, and then how do we begin to, to plan on how to model it? Um, yeah. but yeah. And even, um, one of one of my friends, Megan Briggs, Jr.'s wife, she she actually modeled some of this with um, civil conversations uh, mm. that took place within our area over the course of the last few years, and she's still invested in some of that work. Um, mm. But just learning how to how to talk about stuff. So, yeah, yeah, That's dude, awesome. this is this is good. This is really good. I I hope you know we'll send everybody the bill later. Um, but yeah, thanks for thanks for for thinking about taking some time to sort of debrief after this conversation, Bob, I think this is really, really important. Wait, now what bill are we sending? Who's getting charged? Yeah. What's happening? <laughs> Everybody, because we just gave all the answers to every problem coming oh, up God, in 2024. God. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Bob for president. No, oh, no. All right. No. <laughs> Wouldn't take it if all it right. was offered. Yeah, yeah. seriously. Uh, God bless you. Um, all right. Well, we'll see you all next week. <laughs>